Hi, this is PW Comics World, more to come, Publishers Weekly Magazine's weekly podcast on comics, and I'm Kate Fitzsimmons, I'm the podcast producer, and today I'm in interview with Glenn Weldon, the author of The Cape Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. Uh, hello, Mr. Weldon. Thanks. Hi, hey, Kate, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Good talking to you. So, uh, can you tell us a little about what this book is? Sure, sure. You know, I wrote a uh, cultural history of Superman already called uh, Superman, the Unauthorized Biography. So when I came to do this book, I figured, well, I I knew what I was in for. I figured it would be easy, because my big takeaway from the Superman book was that Superman is a very flattering mirror uh, to... He's basically America as we want to be seen by the world. Very, very powerful, but uses that power with restraint, uh, always looks after the little guy, uh, you know, uh, does, does the right thing all the time. He's an ideal, and a very, uh, he, he's us as we, as we want to be seen. So I figure, okay, simple enough, then Batman must be the dark mirror. You know, he, he's us, uh, our darker impulses coming to the surface, you know, our thirst for uh, our rage, our, our thirst for vengeance, you know, the way we feel when we get cut off in traffic. That's Batman. But as I got into the book, and I talked to a lot of people, including uh, somebody you probably know, Dean Tripp. You know Dean Tripp? Uh, not personally, but I'm well aware of him. Okay. So he wrote this uh, brilliant webcomic called Something Terrible, uh, which is about uh, his relationship to Batman as he grew up, because he was a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and he saw in Batman somebody who overcomes this uh, trauma in their life by, by putting themselves, making themselves of use, by... Uh, doing something for the world. Uh, and uh, that's the thing that I kept hearing um, in, in different ways. You know, a lot of people just think the key to Batman, is, uh, the reason people uh, feel such a deep kinship with him is because, uh, you know, he's human, he's relatable. That's what I heard a lot. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that uh, it's what matters about Batman is that it's his uh, oath. Uh, his, he swears uh, to to keep what happened to him from happening to anybody else. So if you are just looking at the surface, uh, you see the rage, you see the thirst for vengeance. Um, but if you go even a little bit deeper, you see that what he, what's actually at the core of this character is a weird species of hope, uh, a very Sisyphean hope, you know, kind of a never-ending battle. But that's it. And, and that's, that's why I, I've come to the conclusion that he's not really a creature of rage. He's a, he's a creature of hope. Okay. Uh, but also, it says Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. So, um, I draw some interesting parallels in your book. Do you want to talk about it? Sure. You know, I didn't want to do simply just another deep dive into one character. I did want to broaden out a little bit. And so, I kept trying to figure out what it was that has caused Batman to get, to be such a, uh, to have a fan base that is so uh, protective, so zealous, uh, in a way that you don't see for, for characters like Superman or, or even Spider-Man. I figured, okay, maybe it's because he, he is, after all, a nerd, and, and nerds see themselves in that. But, you know, Spider-Man's a nerd. Uh, there's more to it than that. I think um, in 1970, when uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams took over, and they rebooted Batman, uh, the first great reboot of comics, uh, they were reacting virulently, violently reacting against the Adam West Batman television show, and the fad that it inspired. And so they made him dark. Uh, they you know, reached back to the character's roots and made him dark. They made him gothic. They made him mysterious. But O'Neill introduced something that I think made all the difference, and that's he introduced the notion of obsession. 
he realized that this oath that the kid swore uh, by candlelight uh, at his bedside after his parents were murdered was not just a backstory. It was not just uh, a, a, a plot point to motivate. It had to become his driving obsession, his central uh, fixation. And as soon as that happened, uh, I think a, a nation of nerds saw, saw themselves, and who knew a little something about obsession, <laughs> saw themselves... And this was actually at the same time when uh, comics stopped catering to kids and turned inward and started to chase the uh, the hardcore collector and the hardcore nerd. So, because comics in 1970 were really, you know, that their audience was teens and adults already. It was even 10 years before it was mostly kids, but that changed. And so you have this complicated thing happening. You have Batman being written as an obsessive. You have a, a nation of nerds who kind of recognize obsession, and you also have these books being written more and more for nerds, while uh, you know the kids' comics kind of are just the go the way of Archie and uh, and Casper. So um, maybe you can tell us a little about yourself and um, sure. your in- your interaction with pop culture as a career. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Well, uh, I have been writing. Um, uh, I'm a critic, uh, first and foremost. I do uh, some criticism for uh, NPR and their website, as well as I'm a panelist on a podcast called Pop Culture Happy Hour. Uh, my, my relationship with Batman goes way, way back. Uh, you know, I used to uh, memorize the uh, television stations, the, the television schedules uh, on Philadelphia television stations um, uh, very much, because when other kids were out playing in the sun, I was watching TV. And my first exposure, as with many kids my age, my first exposure to Batman was uh, as a kid watching the old uh, Batman television show, which has this weird sort of bifurcated appeal. You know, kids love it because it's colorful and, and it's uh, adventurous, uh, and adults love it because, of course, it's funny. And that funny doesn't really work uh, on the level of kids, but something happens to us as we age, and we hit this sort of adolescence where we insist that Batman... Uh, has to be a badass. Has to be um, has has to has to be ultra serious. We, he has to be quote, quote unquote taken seriously, and uh, that's when we kind of rebel against the Batman television show for making fun of Batman. That's when we rebel against Joel Schumacher for uh, camping it up. But I think there's a place for that, and if there's anything that you can pull away from the book, it's that there is no one version of Batman. There there's many different kinds. There's many different versions, and they all have uh, equal right to exist. Sorry about that. They all have equal right to exist. Well, obviously, they have an equal right to to exist. But do you, devil's advocate, do you think that all of the bad feelings toward, um, say, something like Joel Shoemaker's Batman, or you know, just certain eras of of Batman comics or certain titles? is inherently comes out of a sort of adolescent desire to be more tough and cool? Or do you think maybe some of it is is in its own way a fan version of literary criticism? Oh, that's an interesting point. Uh, you know, uh, Batman is American masculinity as envisioned by a 14-year-old boy who gets his lunch money stolen a lot. Uh, <laughs> he's laconic, he's hyper-muscular, uh, he's, he's cool, uh, and he always wins in a fight. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, there is something to that. He, there, 
what I came away with from the book is that Batman isn't a mirror. What he is is an inkblot, because you can project onto this character all everything you want him to be. He becomes what you want him to be, simply because uh, he is so... Uh, there, there are so many different versions of him. For 30 years of his life, he was basically a cipher. He was basically just a cop in a cape. Um, that the first 30 years I'm talking about, in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And then... The 70s, again, the 70s is when they decided they need to uh, inject um, a little bit of adolescent wish fulfillment. Because when comics started, they were kids' wish fulfillment. They were, you know, I want to be the, the guy who can fly the farthest and run the fastest and be the strongest. But then in the 70s, and this was led, by the way, by Marvel, as you, as you know, that uh, they decided to inject personalities into these characters because... Um, the readership was aging, and they wanted uh, they wanted to, to read in comics uh, people having problems that they recognized, uh, these, these teenagers and adults. Uh, so all of a sudden, you started having guilt-ridden superheroes and uh, superheroes who, who wanted to fit in, and uh, superheroes who uh, were creatures of rage. And so, yeah, so this whole, whole thing, and uh, so Benny O'Neill injects that in, uh, in the 70s, Frank Miller comes along in the 80s and gives that whole thing sort of a hypertrophic uh, adrenaline kick, you know, just douses it in testosterone, so you get this very Schwarzenegger action movie kind of Batman in uh, The Dark Knight Returns. And then, you know, the, the, the nerds get the Batman that they want. The nerds get the, the, the kind of um, the, the Christopher Nolan Batman, and ultimately the Zack Snyder Batman, who is a badass who can do no wrong, who always wins, who is uh, super serious, and all traces of whimsy, all traces of humor are leached from the character. And that's good and bad, because, you know, back in the 60s, um, Batman was a creature of fun because he was such a square. Uh, Now, there's this counter-narrative, which I, I really like. You see it in things like the Lego movie, where Batman is made fun of not because he's a square, but because he needs to lighten the hell up because he is so serious. And I think that's, that's I think we're at a very interesting uh, part, uh, place in the culture right now, vis-a-vis this character. I mean, the, the idea of the book is that Batman is a great lens to examine uh, nerd culture through, because he was served as a catalyst to kind of bring a lot of um, normals into nerdly pursuits. You know, uh, these movies have a huge impact. You know, if you ask my aunt Faye, uh, you know who's Batman? She'll have a she'll have an idea. It'll be shaped by the movies, not the comics, but she'll have an idea. And that idea right now is kind of at a crossroads. So is it going to be Zack Snyder's uh, hypermuscular, hypermasculine, um, testosterone-laced video game kind of Batman, or is it going to be something else? So I imagine that uh, you've you've probably come across the. Um the stories about uh, Ben Affleck rewriting Batman's dialogue while wearing the Batman suit. Yeah, I did come across that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I do wonder, um, you know, how much the different people who um, interact with and created Batman over the years—I mean, Denny O'Neill aside—be um, they writers or artists or Actors. I mean, how much were they avatars of their time, do you think? And how much did they actually, on you know, shape what was, was coming with Batman? I think the actors uh, have a huge uh, effect. Uh, and 
you know, as I say, the book isn't just about a deep dive into the Batman character. It's also about how uh, the fan community reacts to each iteration. And what does that say about X, Y, and Z? There's something fascinating going on. Um, if you just look at Batman's chin. Now, Batman's chin is the only thing you ever see of him in when he's in the suit. Yeah. Uh, so it is hugely important to uh, to nerds out there and, and to nerds like me. I mean, it, it acts as a sort of uh, bellwether. It says, okay, so how much how much are the producers really committing to you know the idea of my Batman? <laughs> um, so you know, you go back. Uh, uh, I read through a lot of fanzines and uh, and go use the internet wayback machine to kind of find some old message boards about each introduction of a new Batman. So uh, the there's a lot of talk in, in uh, 1988 and 89 about how Michael Keaton isn't good, isn't going to be a good Batman because a he's funny and b his chin is too soft. And then, <laughs> and then in uh, when it, it's Val Kilmer, it kind of settles down like, well, okay, that makes that makes sense. And then uh, when it's uh, George Clooney who's got the cleft, the dimple, there's this 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 whole uh, discussion, uh, and including people like Roger Ebert saying, you know what, his chin looks good. I think this is the best Batman because his chin looks great. And then oh dear, you've got you've got um, Christian Bale, who you know the people, the fans objected because a he's Welsh and b his chin is pointy. So it, it, it's just a fascinating uh, reaction and uh, reaction to the reaction that you see going going back and forth. So um, let's go into this in a little more depth because we're a podcast and we have the time. Um, not that you need to give away your entire book. But um, one thing that struck me when I was reading the book was you were saying about how, in some ways, the story of Batman reflects the greater acceptance of individual obsessions in our culture mm-hmm. over over his history. Uh, can you talk a little about that? Yeah, um, back in the day, uh, nerding out wasn't a thing. But people had hobbies, and people loved sports. And sports are this weird thing. Sports are a thing which are, uh, you can have a very nerdy, sabermetric kind of obsession with sports, and it's considered completely healthy. But the other kind of obsession, which is, uh, you know, something that happened to us in the uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s, is, is we've become a culture of people who define ourselves by our obsessions. Uh, and it's not the specific thing that we nerd out over. It's that whether or not it's a comics or food, if you're a foodie or if you're a polit- politics walker or anything like that. What matters is this kind of obsession, the, the degree of, of feeling that you have for things, which trumps irony, which, which you know, the 80s and 90s were a time of uh, ironic distance. And nerds never had it. Nerds don't have it. Uh, God love us. We, we, we love a thing and we love it deeply. And we can share, we can put some, uh, some distance between us and the thing, but we don't want to. That's, that's, uh, that's what makes us nerds. So uh, the, the idea of how Batman intersects with that is that because uh, he is a creature of obsession. He is a creature who is showing us. Uh, and showing us in, in many ways, you know, when uh, writers like uh, Morrison and, and uh, a whole bunch of people have shown that there's a dark side to that, that, that this obsession distances him from uh, his family. Uh, that's an important factor here. Because, of course, I, I show in the book how there are three phases of Batman. He starts off as a loner, then he, uh, he, he adopts Robin, and then he becomes the kind of the leader of this Bat family. And several times over the years, he's cycled through that kind of three-stroke three stroke, uh, engine, 
to to because when they want to make him a badass, when they want to have him taken seriously, the first thing they do is they get rid of Robin. And when they get rid of Robin, he's back on it. He's back on uh, on his own. He's uh, you know he's his own man, and he can do what he wants. And but the thing about Robin is Robin is half the story, and you eventually he always comes back. You you cycle through Robins, you kill off Robins, Robins always come back because they you need that counterpoint and um when you introduce that counterpoint you also introduce uh something else that i talk about in the book uh which is the the sort of homoerotic tension or at least the homoerotic readings the gay subtext that has always been a part of this character that is inescapable um even though it's not intended as a romantic relationship uh what i argue in the book is that it doesn't matter because uh, you know, gay folks have not seen themselves uh, reflected in the culture very often uh, until very recently. So when they have a character like Batman and Robin, two characters like Batman and Robin, they look for any kind of connection. They look for something of themselves. And, and if they don't see it, they make it. <laughs> and that's, that's just the way subtext works. So, so, uh, yeah, um, so let's, let's dig a little deeper into that instead of just breezing over it so quickly. Um so, would you say that Robin is is just the well? First off, what do you think the the Robin half of the story is? I mean, in, include just not just the homoerotic subtext, but also you know half the story. Like, where are you? Where are you going with that? And then also, when it comes to the subtext, um, what do you think? Where do you think that started? And where do you think that comes from? Okay. It started uh, as soon as he was introduced. Um, he was introduced to a lighten the tone because the uh, editors at DC were getting worried because the book was so dark and grim. Uh, and basically, he was at this, this stage in his life. He was basically a ripoff of the Shadow, mm-hmm. uh, and they wanted to do something to separate him out. Uh, and also, they introduced him because uh, Batman is a detective, and when you have a detective, you need when you have a Sherlock, you need a Watson for him to talk to. This is before the time of thought balloons. And, and model and you know internal monologue so you need to have him explain how he's working out the case um right and it helps to just have a character to give a character someone to talk to at all so you can have something going on on the page other than just fist fights absolutely and you also need to raise the stakes if you give that man something to care about if you give him something that is very important to him and you have that that very important thing kidnapped a hell of a lot then you have a story then you have stakes then you have something that uh, you know you have consequences in a medium that that isn't necessarily given to consequences in a medium like uh, superhero comic books there is just endless iteration there's just the because these characters are heavily licensed nuggets of intellectual property that uh, can't change. They can't really grow. They can't go through the narrative arcs that uh, other characters and other mediums can. So what you have to do is you have to kind of uh, gesture towards change and growth, uh, even if you have to kind of keep putting the toy back in the toy box at the end of every afternoon, you know, and then picking it up and, and playing with it again. So, so that's what Robin does. Robin gives you stakes. He gives you something to care about. He gives you something to bounce off of. And in the uh, in the eighties, when Batman started to get even grimmer, uh, he gave he gave you can delineate characters by having them um, come into conflict. So this is something that Marvel knew very well and that DC picked up on pretty soon. 
Uh, so you have these conflicts with Robin. Robin wants to go off on his own. Robin doesn't like living in Batman's shadow. Uh, and this back and forth gives you a better sense of who Robin is. And it also tells you a little bit about uh, who Batman is and what he values. So regardless of which Robin it is, every time they come in, uh, by having them come to conflict with Batman in a way that uh, parents and teens uh, often come into conflict, you can kind of tell us a little bit about each of them. And in ter- terms of the subtext, well, it's it's just there. I mean, you know, again, uh, the, the moment, the very month that uh, Dr. Frederick Wortham was testifying in front of the Kefauver subcommittee uh, about many things about comics, including uh, that there was a homoerotic subtext to, to Batman comics. In that very month, uh, there was an issue on the stands where Batman and Robin wake up to bed <laughs> and say, and Batman says, you know, let's, let's have a nice big hot breakfast and a cold shower. And, it's just, <laughs> and, and the text goes out of the way to say, another typical morning in Wayne Manor. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just there. It's just there. And, uh, you know, and other times they're uh, sunning together naked under sun lamps. Uh, sometimes they're uh, out on a boat in the middle of a park so, uh, in the middle of the night. So where do you think this, this comes from? Do you think the writers were just so supremely clueless or, or you know, where, where do you think it comes from? Well, I would argue that, you know, it, again, you're trying to create a narrative. Uh, you're trying to create some kind of tension in the narrative. So to give to have um, uh, Robin kidnapped or ha- to have Robin jealous that somebody's going to be taking over his role, whether or not that's a romantic rival, you know, it, 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 Batman gets a new girlfriend and Robin gets jealous, or uh, Bat- Robin gets worried that somebody else is going to take over his role as Robin, and that sends him, you know, flying off to cry, to hurl himself on the nearest overstuffed couch and cry. This is all just melodrama. This is all part of melodrama, and this is what these books were playing into. Um, as far as, you know, waking up in bed together, I mean, you know, fathers and sons, you know, often you, know, you often let your kid crawl into bed with you. That's that's a thing. That's a thing that happens. It's not, there's no, there's nothing inherently um, gay about it unless you are a gay kid looking for something, <laughs> looking and, for anything that reflects you. Yeah. Anything that you, any aspect of And uh, it, that, it could uh, be a fortuitous combination of, all these bits that individually might not have made anyone think of it, but when you add the melodrama to the other things, then it certainly can read a certain way if you look at it. Yeah, and what Frederick Wortham did is what a lot of people now do on Tumblr, on Instagram, you know, on Facebook. They just pull uh, individual panels out of context and be like, oh, well, Batman's great. He's basically doing that only in, in a book. <laughs> Well, some people would argue that even in context, subtext can still be found, but yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yes. And uh, that that is something that um, has been such a part of this character. And again, it wouldn't necessarily work. There wouldn't necessarily be that subtext uh, if Batman was on his own. But as soon as you introduce a youthful ward, uh, in this case, then, then you create this tension. Whether or not you intend to it does, or not, it doesn't matter. It's there. And so then you can kind of play with it, uh, or, or you can kind of tr- do everything you can to uh, shove it aside, as Frank Miller did in The Dark Knight Returns, by turning Robin into a young girl, that homoerotic tension go- goes away. However, then he makes uh, the Joker, uh, his Joker, this kind of incredible mincing, <laughs> mincing queen out of a 70s sitcom. So you're saying about how 
um, obsession has become more acceptable and interesting uh, to our culture as a whole over the course of, of Batman's existence. Um, what do you think made that change? Like, why do you think we are now more at home with obsession? Well, I think it's the internet. Um, the internet breeds niche interest because uh, a you can kind of chase whatever passing thought you have down a, a rabbit hole um, uh, to find uh, just a morass of fact and opinion. Uh, and B, it connects you with people uh, out there who you may not have realized share your obsession. So you can you can share it with somebody else and, and amplify it. And you know, as I say in the book, you kind of fan this uh, flame of your burning passion into a raging inferno of <laughs> it can be it sometimes be dangerous but it, that's that's what it is and you know the the fan community was already connected uh through uh fanzines through uh cons and so when the internet came along it just mapped an infrastructure of electronic infrastructure over the existing uh nerd networks but it also makes them able to talk to each other and you know and, and opine and uh, with all the good and the bad that that entails so what okay i'm waiting to branch out from the book a little bit but still sure. talk batman um what incarnations of batman speak to you i mean clearly the 1960s show but um obviously you've immersed yourself in an awful lot of batman at the very least just to make this book um which uh-huh. ones really speak to you and why i think uh, the best version of uh, Batman, the truest, quote-unquote, truest version of Batman that has ever been on the screen and will ever be on the screen is the animated series, Batman. Yes, you and many a fan. Yeah, sure, but uh, hear me out here. No, no, I'm I'm not arguing. I I, I am not disputing that at all. Go on. Well, it's just that uh, when you take a character like Batman out of the endlessly recursive narrative medium and you try to put him into, say, an action movie, you have to then overlay the action movie structure of beginning, middle, and end, triad structure, uh, uh, and you have to you, you have to do give give him a love interest. You have to give him uh, you know uh, uh, you have to do something big. You have to have a big climactic thing at the end, which is a rough fit over a character like Batman, who is meant to kind of go on. Is meant to kind of have adventures eternally. So, for example, when Tim Burton uh, made uh, the 1989 Batman movie, he kind of put a revenge plot onto the thing. Now, you can't do that easily uh, on Batman because Batman is not about revenge. He's about justice. Uh, he, his oath to uh, spend the rest of his life warring on all criminals isn't, I'm going to go get the guy who killed my parents. Uh, it's much bigger than that. It's broader than that. It's a crusade. I yeah, the advisor would be because the word crusade. The, ca- the cape crusader of, is is there for a reason. That that's his name for a reason. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that's hugely important. It has to be bigger than the in the uh, event that started him upon it. But as soon as you make, say, for example, the Joker, the guy who killed his parents, you are mm. you are giving us a very satisfying, tidy um, action movie. Uh, you're, you're basically turning him into Charles Bronson with bad ears because he, he goes out and he gets revenge on the people who, who wronged him. And that's not what Batman's about. So, uh, and also you have, especially in Batman Returns, you have Tim Burton laying over his gothic uh, emo weirdness over a Batman's uh, character. And granted, there's lots of uh, resonances there. There's, lots there's of plenty of gothic emo weirdness in Batman, I mean. Absolutely. But then you have, it, it, it starts to feel like a Tim Burton film mm. with Batman in it. 
you've got Joel Schumacher doing what he's doing, attempting to uh, pay homage homage to the uh, to the sort of 50s, 60s Batman in um, Batman uh, Batman Forever, and then paying homage uh, clearly to the 60s Batman in uh, Batman Forever. But again, it, it feels mediated, uh, and uh, you know the Dark Knight would. The uh, the Dark Knight films with um, Christopher Nolan feel like that's his obsession of paranoia and terrorism and 9/11. He wants to make these comments, these contemporary comments, which are fine, but they are taking the character and using it to do something else. Alone among all uh, screen iterations of Batman, the, uh, the the animated series seems to me not that you're adding something in, you're you're laying your own. Um, directorial take on onto Batman, it seems like you're stripping away everything that's inessential and leaving us only with the essence of the thing. And that's because the, the people who made it were nerds themselves. They knew and loved Batman. They didn't need to turn him into a different medium. They didn't need to say, okay, we need to give him a love interest. We need to give him a... Uh, we, we need, to, we need to, the big action set piece at the end. Because the half-hour format is as close as the media, the, the television medium, or the, any kind of um, live action medium or whatever can get to the comic book. They, yeah. they are very, very similar in structure, and the fact that they can kind of return to, to beginning at the status quo, um, that's where, and also, there's something like... And yet they still have room for story arcs and characterization yeah, arcs, just like because comics. You get, absolutely, because you get, like you get in comics, you get time, you get years, you get season after season and over the course of these seasons there can be changes, you can deepen characterizations, you can show us uh, what motivates uh, villains you can, you're can you allowed to have uh, episodes that have that are kind of more humorous, that kind of lighten the tone but they all kind of blend in together uh, so yeah, I, I gotta say whenever they ask me who my favorite Batman is I gotta say, uh, Kevin Connors because again uh, he is a character who exists on the two-dimensional page, and when you see him moving in two dimensions, as he does in animation, uh, it just feels natural. It feels like a natural outgrowth of, uh, of the Batman that we grew up with. Yeah, and I think it did a really good job of of distilling Batman and taking some of the strengths from all the different iterations so that you know, he could have both some of the seriousness and yet have some of the warmth. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, the spiritual success to that was uh, Batman the Brave and the Bold, which kind of combined the best parts of the animated series with the goofiest parts of the uh, 66 Batman show, but was still true to the character. Still, uh, that's that's what I keep saying. It's, you know, that there is, you, you can stretch this character a lot and still have to be Batman. There's a reason that why we can look at Bruce Wayne, uh, we can look at uh, Adam West there on the floor, um, go-going, uh, <laughs> and see that it's the same character as uh, as Christian Bale, you know, going, swear to me. It's the same character. It's, it's not just the bad ears that, that connects them. There's something yeah. essential. There's something true about all of them. So, you know, what's what's next? You know, Superman, Batman, are, are you going to move on to the third part of the Trinity? Are you going to move on to Wonder Woman, or are you, are you no, moving no, off to... Weird... No, I think, I think uh, you know, I, the first book was a deep dive into one character. This book is certainly it's a deep dive, but I hope I broadened out to talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about uh, the culture. Uh, I think, you know, I've already talked to a lot of people about it, and, you know, for every 
uh, normal who tells me, man, this is a really deep dive. <laughs> There's a nerd who tells me, you know, I was surprised that Archie Goodwin's ten work tenure on the best books only. <laughs> so, you know, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little pleasing. I do like writing about uh, the culture, wider culture. So I think I might be pivoting away from superheroes for, for the time being to kind of do something a little bit broader. Uh, but uh, that's we'll see, we'll see. It's uh, it, it's a lot of fun. Well, it certainly would be interesting um, for someone, perhaps not you, to to take this kind of model, like you've used with the um, the Cape Crusade, and um, use Wonder Woman as a, a lens for the interaction of women in pop culture. But that would be a different yeah, well, story. It, it would be a different story. And that, what's fascinating about that is there is a great book by Jill Lepore. Yeah, I I, I know about it, although it's. Yep. But that's not quite what it is. It's it's no. In thing. fact, it's a, it's a it, yeah. It's a, it's actually a, a understanding. It's it's a really good examination of what formed the people who made her, as opposed to what formed her. If that makes any sense, it's really about yeah. the culture of uh, and suffragette movement and uh, the culture of the thirties and forties and how that uh, shaped the thinking of. It's of an origin and story. The, and the women around her. What that? I said it's an origin story. Yeah, it really is. It's an origin of the kind of thinking that leads you to create uh, uh, a character like Wonder Woman. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you have a lot of feelings about pop culture, and somehow you turned that into a gig at NPR. Like, for our listeners out there who love pop culture and love uh, listening to audio media, how did that happen for you? Uh, well, let's see. I I, uh, I was a my I have a degree in uh, fiction writing. Let's see, the Irish Workshop. I uh, got kind of tired of living, breathing, and talking fiction. So when I when I got a gig in uh, D.C. as writer in residence at a uh, school here, it was a one year gig. So I started to uh, look around for uh, doing something, anything else than just talking, write about write about writing and. Um, so I did a lot of freelance stuff, um, and one of the freelance things I did was uh, I was a theater critic at the local uh, Alt Weekly here in D.C., uh, and that's how I met uh, Trey Graham, who uh, was on Pop Culture Happy Hour for a while, and, and uh, Trey kept encouraging me to write for NPR, uh, so I started to kind of do regularly a um, weekly column, I guess you'd call it, about comics for the NPR website. Uh, and that led indirectly to Pop Culture Happy Hour. And, uh, and Pop Culture Happy Hour led to the Superman book, which led to this book. So yeah, I have, I have Troy Graham. I have a lot, a lot to thank that guy for. <laughs> so as a pop culture commentator, what pop culture and what pop culture commentary is interesting you right now? Like, what's what's on your brain? Huh. Um, well... Let's see. I mean, we just did a whole show on uh, on the Oscars and uh, everything surrounding them, uh, including the Oscar so white controversy and uh, that kind of stuff. That is fascinating to me. Uh, I do uh, read pretty much everything I can get my hand. I'm I am going back to uh, reading uh, fiction. I just picked up a book uh, on Lois Lane uh, that is kind of the the same model that uh, that I did. Um, uh, on both the Superman and the Batman book that kind of traces her, her character through the ages. I wish I could remember the name of the guy who wrote it, but I don't remember the guy who wrote it. Um, 
uh, I guess what I'm really uh, keying into right now is, uh, is is stuff that approach like if you're going to be critiquing popular culture, uh, you, you first have to kind of make the case, especially if you are writing for a place like say NPR, that it's worth critiquing, that it's worth talking about. Um, there's a there's a whole there's a strain of the NPR listenership who uh, who will come show up onto your uh, blog post, for example, and say things like, really, NPR? What about Syria? And uh, so you have to kind of say, all right, yes, good. We should be talking about Syria. But uh, when you examine something like uh, a show like Unreal, or uh, when you examine something like uh, the movie uh, uh, 45 Years, or, or even Mad Max, um, these things are being made not in a vacuum. They're being made because they comment on something that's happening to us right now. They're, it's not just. It's worth doing. It's worth. It's it's worth taking the time to understand a what they are doing, what they are attempting to do, and whether or not that thing that they're attempting to do is successful, and if it's worth doing. Uh, and that's the kind of framework that. Um, that we bring to to discussing thing, things at NPR. We also, you know, um, we we see ourselves. At least I see myself anyway as a curator more than a critic per se. Um, because again, if there is uh, a comic out there or, or a novel out there or a piece of nonfiction or even a movie out there that doesn't work, uh, why spend um, a lot of listeners' time or readers' time critiquing it, tearing it down, when uh, they what they want from us is is recommendations. So. Spending some time to, to kind of say, here's here's what works, and here's why it works, and uh, that's that's something that I uh, I really enjoy. If that's and there's a line there between the, being a critic and being a reviewer, um, and that's that line is very permeable. I think a critic takes a little bit more time to provide criticism, uh, to provide context, and so uh, and reviewers tend to say this is worth it, this is not worth it, and so I hope to straddle that line. So. Obviously, you started out loving your, you know, favorite comics classics on television. Um, what is your comic story like? How? What were the stages for you in between? I'm watching Batman on TV, and I love and under comic understand comics so much that I'm reviewing them for NPR. Like, where? Where did? What was that? What did that look like for you? Uh, well, as a kid. Um... I got started. A friend of mine gave me. I remember it very clearly. It was a, uh, I think, it was a Legion of Superheroes book, um, a Legion of Superheroes comic. And uh, you know, I thought superheroes were what I saw on television. I thought they were Superman. I thought they were Batman. And the Legion of Superheroes at the time was. I, I remember it very clearly. They were. It was. They were whining to each other about their relationships, and they were trying to elect a chairman. And I thought, well, this is not. <laughs> you know, I was six. So I want, I want some face punching. I don't necessarily want all these feelings. So uh, I kind of got, I, I never caught that bug that early on. But then uh, I think when I was 11 or 12, uh, there was this uh, comic book, there was this bookstore near our house. And my dad would go to the Sears surplus store to look at dented refrigerators. And I would uh, do anything but go into that boring, boring store. And so I'd head over to the uh, comic books, the, the, the bookstore, and just hang out by the very squeaky uh, uh, rack that uh, squeaked as, as it rotated, and just devoured um, mostly DC. I mean, there are DC people and there are Marvel people, and uh, I was a DC person because I liked um, 
characters with very simple motivations who did good things. I didn't love when um, they fought each other uh, and when they, they, they complained about their, their, their lives and when Aunt May was dying again. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't me as a kid. I, I needed something a little bit more... Um, hopeful. I guess hopeful. Yeah, exactly. So uh, then I got out of them uh, because the 90s happened. and Ah, uh, uh, the 90s. Yeah, what, what was happening there was not for Glenn's. So I just uh, disavowed it completely and just gave up. And then I guess what brought me back in was Grant Morrison's uh, JLA comic uh, toward the tail end of the 90s, which seemed to me to be a riot of, of ideas that didn't necessarily hang together, but certainly uh, was, interesting. Was, it was, in, was fascinating and uh, a really, really effective in small bursts, if you look at it, the whole run, I think, maybe sort of cuts the phrase there at the end, but certainly he was doing something that other folks weren't doing. And then, uh, yeah, as the as the aughts turned, I just started reading uh, comics all over again. And, uh, and so I guess what I was attempting to do when I was writing uh, for NPR about comics was trying to pick out one story of the week, one thing that was happening, and uh, explain to an audience of people who I knew were not necessarily comics readers uh, why what was happening in this book or what was happening with this trend was uh, worthy of note, was, was worth them kind of taking some time to think about. So what's currently on your pull list? What's, what's currently coming out that you're interested in? Uh, you know, yeah, I'm not going to surprise you. The, it's, the, it's the basic stuff. It's The Wicked and the Divine. It's uh, it's Squirrel Girl. It's Division. It's uh, I do like uh, Yang's Superman. Um, I do uh, like what Snyder's doing with Batman. It's not necessarily as uh, ambitious and soaring and psychedelic as what uh, Morrison did on his run, but it's certainly very very practical. And it is getting it, as it, as it was wrapping up there, it was getting weirder and weirder. So I do I do uh, like that. Um, oh boy, there's a hell of a lot more. Uh, I should really have a list. Uh, but, <laughs> no, it's okay. Just tell me what's uh, on your brain. You know, like just off the top of your head. It doesn't need to be, you know, every single comic you're reading. Just what's popping into your mind at this time. A snapshot. Yeah. Um, let's see. There's uh, again, Squirrel Girl and and things of that. Miss Marvel, of course. Uh, yeah, this is what I'm saying. I'm not surprising. I'm just going to just parrot back the things that everybody's, uh, everybody's talking about. But um, there's a uh, comic called Another Castle, which I just started, which I really, really dig. Uh, let's see. Um, and, yeah, it's, I should, again, I should, <laughs> it should, should have come prepared by. Is it weird being a guest on a podcast when you yourself host a podcast? Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm I am a mere panelist. I would not call myself a host. That that is Linda's job, and Linda is amazing at it. And that is not what I do, uh, because I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> we she, we offered at the very beginning. Let's hey, let's have a rotating host, and uh, I think I think we all we all gave it a shot. And we're like, nope, nope. You do this much better, uh, and uh, you should you should full time because this is not my gig. So since you're you're branching out from superheroes to maybe larger pop top pop culture topics, um, mm-hmm. what are some that are you're considering right now as a next place to go? Where next for Glenn? Oh, I don't know. 
Yeah, I, 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 I knew I'd get asked this question, so I should come up, I should make something up. But, um, well, better uh, to be honest. Know, I, one, of the, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is, frankly, podcasts. Uh, I think there is a weird kind of unidirectional intimacy that podcasts engender. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people who think they know who I am because they listen to me on a podcast. I feel the same way on podcasts like uh, Jordan Jesse Go. Uh, I, I have listened to so many hours of that podcast, which I love, that I feel when I when I met uh, these guys, I feel like you know I, I listen to them talk about uh, when their dog died. I, I listen to them talk about uh, you know looking for a job. It's it, it, the Can fact you... that it is uh, informal, uh, it is long form, and the fact that it, it, it and this is the antithesis of, of you know the typical uh, NPR highly produced, um, very tight sort of this American life kind of thing. It, it's different it's it's shaggier and because it's shaggier it feels you know if you stumble onto the wrong one when people are just bloviating like i've been doing for the past 40 minutes uh you, you might want to say okay well, I, this is not nothing i want to have anything to do with but if you find the right one and you get this resonance it's it's just you are living with these people literally inside your head they're they're in your in, in your earbuds which are inside your brain inside, inside your head and uh, it's it's just a fascinating degree of intimacy and so much is happening right now in this medium and nobody knows where the hell it's going and nobody knows what's coming next i think that's just a fascinating thing to think about can you repeat for our listeners the name of that podcast jordan and jesse jordan jesse go uh it's just two dudes uh, again <laughs> this formula will not shock you it's two dudes sitting around with a guest uh just just uh, joking around, and um, it, it's not. They're they're both uh, cl- closer on the nerd scale than on the jock scale, so it's not like broy at all, as many podcasts tend to devolve into. Uh, but it's just a hell of a lot of fun. Okay, and so I'm sure that's on your list. What are your top five podcasts that you're listening to? I mean, not necessarily that you think are the best in the world, but that you enjoy the most. Okay, um, let's see. You got your Jordan Jesse Go. You got mm-hmm. your uh, Stop Podcasting Yourself. You got your Adventure Zone, which is uh, the, the guys, the McElroy brothers from um, My Brother, My Brother and Me, doing uh, a um, uh, just playing D&D, but playing D&D in a very sort of comedic way. Uh, you've got a Whistle Stop, which is John Dickerson uh, from the Slate's Political Gab Fest, uh, basically giving little snippets of um, of presidential campaign history. And let's see, oh, Spontaneous Nation, which is, of course, Paul F. Tompkins and uh, some of his improv buddies doing a long-form improv uh, just based on uh, an interview that they do with a guest at the beginning. Uh, all those are a lot of fun. Okay. Um, so do you have anything else that you'd like to say to our listeners before it's time to sign off? Uh, no, I, I just hugely appreciate this opportunity. I, I listen to podcasts and I, I dig it a lot and uh, it's great to be on it. Uh, and uh, yeah, and if you know everybody listening uh, to uh, the sound of my voice would just buy you know just the 10 copies of the book just 10, <laughs> That's all you need to do. Just, just 10 you know give them maybe 15 give, give them away for, uh, for gifts, you know pardon gifts, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I'm very excited about this book. I do like, uh, that it is, uh, that I, I'm attempting to straddle, um, giving, giving the nerds a nice, concise, very easily digestible history and giving the normals 
something that uh, tries to put it in context with uh, how our culture has changed over the last 75 years. Thank you so much. Uh, It was great talking to you. And I really hope that there will be um, more to come from you. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you, Kate. This was fun.